What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio for the last time before he's off to Real Madrid, it's Andy Greenwald! Do you think I'm a Galactico? You are to me, at least. Aww. Andy, it's great to see you. We are here with Kaya McMullen, our producer, mm-hmm. uh, who has hit record on this a while ago, I candid, think. casual conversation that we have twice a week about the world of popular culture. Kaya, do you, are you ever tempted to just like release the pre-pod tapes? I mean, you guys had a rousing conversation about uh, LA acupuncturists before this, so. <laughs> no, I think I was just a little spiky because what happens is. Speaking of acupuncture. Uh, I hurt my back. Um, uh-huh. Not doing anything interesting. Leaning over to get my my valise. And Jesus Christ, I think it, I think it's a back spasm. It felt like a firework went off in mm-hmm. my spine. And I just, you know, I just I'm screwed. I'm old. But, and like, I just feel like I, I mean, I'll get better by itself with lidocaine patches and hot showers. See, no, <laughs> see, this is the thing. And you want me to go weep. Kaya and I get hands put on me. This is the thing, Chris. You can you can stay in pain. That's but the pain is a choice, man. <laughs> Like, you just don't want to do the things that'll help you feel better. Pain is a choice. So we weren't going to talk about this on mic, but Kaya wants to, Yeah, clearly. Kaya's worried about our demographics and, like, feels like this podcast should become what it needs to be. Which is a wellness podcast. Which is not about new Apple programs like Lessons in Chemistry or the Beckham documentary on Netflix or even the state of the industry. Mm. It's really about two aging men taking different paths towards self-care. Yeah. That's the friction point. That's what's going to drive this thing into the next decade. One gnaws on nicotine tablets. <laughs> and, and one does Pilates multiple times a week. Sure. So, But who's healthier? And who's having more fun? Yeah, that's you. the question. No, it's not I, a question. It's do you, you think it is? I went to, uh, just wanted to say I went to the Haunted Hayride last night See? in Griffith Park. Having more fun. Uh, they moved locations. Um, For within legal, Griffith Park legal and, purposes? I don't know. It's a great question. I wonder if there was an environmental impact study that was done. I think I ruined a pair of shoes doing it, sneakers. 
And it was okay. Because you were running? Like, I don't understand the... Every year you tell me that you do this. No, it was I, just like much dirt, like a dirt path rather than any sort of paved action. Right. Um, you know, when if the first year I went to this thing, so I don't, I'm sure people in their town have something like this. Um, like where... Sometimes like it's not even like... Experiential heart. I mean, sometimes it's not even... <laughs> so it's, that's what I'm saying. Uh, this is now my second haunted experience of, mm. um, of the fall. I went to one in Portland, Oregon, and then I went Did to you? The, the usual one in Los Angeles. I, I wonder whether or not it's like it's like a, a, a class A drug, you know, where it's just mm-hmm. like you're always chasing that first high. Did you have one like sort yeah, of Yeah, the first year we went to Haunted Hayride, I was like, this is unbelievable. The narrative thread about it was like that it was like a cult of children who were like living in the, it was like basically children of the corn. Like they were living off the grid or something? Yeah. Because I did apply to that preschool. <laughs> Is that Montessori? It was very, very hard to get in. <laughs> did Ryder and Wolfie get in instead of <laughs> your kids? Tallulah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was scary, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I maybe just like, I can't just reach over for my bag every time I want. Maybe I can't can't be getting on hayrides and, and getting shocked by... Oh, oh, I see. I thought you were still doing the class A drug metaphor and your bag was full of more drugs. No, I got I'm lost just like, you I mean got, like you're hurting yourself. Yeah. You're chasing the old times. Yes. So that plays into what Kaya and I are saying. It's just, it's time for a new Chris. A new Chris. I got a lot riding on the old Chris, you know? I got like, a lot tied up. Like a whole brand. <laughs> and it's like, for, for what it's worth, I don't think our listeners want a new Chris. And I think that... Do you, is the question. No, I just, I'm constantly delighted and amazed like one thing that we've learned about each other because we're still learning is that this week you know there's been a lot of uh postseason baseball Mm -hmm. for our beloved philadelphia phillies and we have been uh texting a lot more perhaps more than than normal sure with with especially with our our buddy zach and um and recently we've been noticing that like zach and i are like locked in on the on the diamond yeah and every so often cr will drop in and be like oh i'm at this hot spot it's not a hot spot it's a bar it is I'm trying to recreate the world. Uh, English social culture where I go to mm-hmm. go to like a, get a drink, you know, in between whether it's after dinner or like right before dinner. We like try to go out. That's nice. And it's, it's not really working in Los Angeles. I was also going to say, and we'll, we are going to talk more about in, it. Because the... in London, you don't drive four blocks away <laughs> and then make 14 U-turns within Hollywood Boulevard looking for a parking space. That was, that's true. Yeah. I also would say that for the many charms of the UK that are present in the Beckham documentary, I yeah. would say it doesn't make pub culture look awesome. <laughs> I would just say, like... <laughs> I've only had good experiences. But the thing in that's so funny is that you say that, and I know what mm-hmm. you mean, is that it's a bit laddish, right? Is that what you're saying? The 90s footage of people in pubs being like, let's garrot David Beckham after I finish this carling. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing. Yeah. When, when you send me mm-hmm. 143 text messages over the course of the second half of an Eagles game, don't that's, you think that, that, that you are that, that, that guy? Seem, that seems low. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm doing it safely at uh, home. I, you right. know, I'm I'm conflict averse <laughs> from your massage table. <laughs> <laughs> Not a, well, I don't have my own aud- audible Kyle laugh for the first time. <laughs> I don't have my own massage table. I do have some of those, like you know, like plastic things, like get the kinks out. You know, like in the back. back. Do you have a ther- uh, like the muscle gun? Yeah. yeah do, do you really? I do. Oh, well, you run though. Yeah. I ju- I run. But on a treadmill. You, know? you, you, you run to your parking space to put more coins in <laughs> so you can have one more lager before heading off to your 6.45 dinner. 
Six forty-five. What do you think I am? Fucking Ari Emanuel. <laughs> we only eat it five or ten in this city now. That's true. Uh, Andy, that's my story. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of news news items before. Oh, you know what I didn't say? Yeah, is that today we are being joined by uh, Fisher Stevens, the director of the David Beckham documentary of Beckham. I would like to request. First of all, that's exciting. And you I, and I didn't Marty. say that at the top of the podcast, which is my my fault. If you are someone who made it this far in the podcast and was like, if these guys say one more thing about massage tables, I'm turning it off. And then heard Chris say Fisher <laughs> Stevens, and you were like, oh, they got me. <laughs> they keep pulling me back in. You let us know. Uh, I feel bad sometimes because I feel mm-hmm. like we gave a lot of attention, mm-hmm. strenuous attention, as you did in your own life, to the writer's strike. Right. And the actors, we've been a little bit more laissez-faire about. Yes. There hasn't been that much news. There was the kind of following the shape of the writer's negotiations. There was a, it's all collapsed. And pointing fingers across the table. Yep. Uh, the studios walked away. The actor side, uh, usually through the uh, voice of Duncan Crabtree Ireland. Or the voice of TV's The Nanny. Or her, Fran Drescher. We're like, we're waiting. We made some suggestions. They walked out. You're right. Ted Sarandos from Netflix, they did their quarterly earnings this week. And he commented on the strike and he didn't seem very happy about it. This morning, the only real news I have for you is that mm. a deadline piece that outlined a effort on the part of some of Hollywood's biggest acting names. So Scarlett Johansson, George Clooney, Ben Affleck, among, among them, uh, made an offer to... Uh, remove the cap on residuals Mm. to bring more money into SAG. Uh, Deadline characterized the offer as, quote, Hollywood's biggest star is laid out to SAG after a a groundbreaking proposal that amounts to the town's biggest earners defraying the cost to AMPTP signatories by eliminating the cap on membership dues to be used to bolster health benefits and other areas that SAG is trying to shore up. So to be clear, what this means is, like, if you're a member of one of these, of any union, you pay your dues and often you pay a percentage of your your earnings. So in, in like, the Writers Guild, it's like 1.5%, something like that goes towards the guild. Yeah. There's a cap on that. Right. So since actress salaries can get so high, no one is paying more than a million dollars, even people who are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And now George Clooney and Scarlett Johansson and Ben Affleck are like, if we make $20 million or however many million dollars on an acting, we're, we're fine to go over that if it helps. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Yeah. Do you think that this is like, I mean, what is the part about defraying the costs to the studios mean? Do, do you kind of grasp that? Or I, is, that, is, that, is that about like, look, if this is the gap, let's bring it together by doing this? I, I think there's a bunch of ways to look at it. And I'm not an expert in labor, nor am I uh, a member of the Screen Actors screen. Guild, yes. despite multiple efforts. Yeah. They just won't have me. Uh, I, I think you could look at this purely in terms of the spirit of the collective, you know, embodied by these top earners. I think it's remarkable. They want to take care of their industry. They want to take care of their peers um, and the next generation of it. I think that's great. I think it is also a smart reflection. I mean, I think they're being aware of the wide disparity in in salaries um, and wanting to contribute more is fantastic. And instead of just sharing enormous amounts of wealth with his 20 best friends <laughs> around a dinner table, which I think is also awesome. And I'm still waiting for that invite to your million dollar party. Um, Clooney's doing it this way. I think that's great. I also think it's indicative of people wanting to get back to work. When we saw that there was a meeting between these members of SAG and the leadership, it did remind me of the contentious 
and I think ultimately canceled meeting that happened near the end of the writer's strike when some of the top showrunners were attempting to sort of uh, meet with the, the brass, the negotiating committee of the WGA saying, we just want to see if we can be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an element of that here too. They just want to move this ball along. The bigger picture is, I still feel like we shouldn't be here. I mean, I think that the, the AMPTP, especially certain members, have the money to make SAG solvent. Uh, and it's pretty ridiculous that this falls on. Um, th- this is this is the fancy star-studded equivalent of a GoFundMe for medical expenses. Sure. It's so nice that people are doing those things. We shouldn't have to do that in a functioning uh, democratic capitalist society. Yeah. But here we are. Um, all of this is is uh, sort of getting the headlines from the fact that it's weird right now. Like, I, I definitely came on this podcast and said what I had been hearing from people more connected uh, than I am, that the SAG deal should follow very closely yes. on the heels of the Writers Guild. And there was a lot of premature assumption of that fact. I think that the, the just the tenor of the stories in the trades was basically like, the end of the strike summer, what this means, when things are going to get back to work, et cetera, et cetera. Assuming that SAG would be very ready to rubber stamp isn't a fair word, but to very, just pick up the bones of what the Writers Guild had done, you know, just a, adjust some clauses and just get yeah, it done. Yeah, I've read some analysis that there was an assumption that the WGA framework for their deal would be the framework for the yes. SAG deal. And instead it's like the floor for the SAG deal in some I, ways. I'm not saying that SAG is asking for too much. I'm saying that that is like perhaps where that disconnect came of like, right, we'll just do a layup I, line here. Well, I think there were two things. I think, it's it's just assumed, I think, that in any industry, like the previous deal sets the floor for the next deal, sure. And that and there's good faith in saying that and goodwill. And you, but want the other the next side is kind of like and the ceiling too, right? You know, there's an element of that. <laughs> yeah. I also think there was an assumption that the SAG deal would happen quickly because, from what I understand, that SAG had been negotiating constructively with the AMPTP up until the moment when things went sour and then they struck. So the sense was that there was some uh, accrued common ground to return to mm-hmm. as opposed to the writers which the WGA and the AMPTP had not really done anything when the strike happened so that said it seems really bad right yeah. now and uh, it does seem like the issue is about success metrics about how to get everyone in SAG involved in sharing uh, yeah, there's another element of the the, the Clooney proposal, mm-hmm. and I, I call it that just because he he specifically talked to Deadline, where they wanted to change the nature by which residuals were mm-hmm. paid out and have it go to the people at the bottom of the call sheet first. Yeah, so that like basically the highest earners got their residuals last. Also interesting and very selfless. I on a very basic level, I think it is a numbers thing for writers, but also like writers who are stakeholders in the success of a show, which is not necessarily um, lower level staff writers, but people who are um, executive producers or showrunners or the creators. There aren't that many, right, that could potentially get bigger payouts going forward, which isn't to say that writers of episodes don't get residuals. They do. I'm not trying to talk past their contributions. But even even with that, the sheer number of potential payouts in a successful Netflix show on the writer producer side is ultimately smaller than actors because a lot of actors are in every episode. Yeah. And how does that work out? Um, so I've heard, I, I, we can't, we don't know what went on in the room. We, I've, I've heard that, the, that the ask suddenly was really, really broad and, you know, 
shut down conversation. There, it sounds like this SAG is trying to have some kind of participation in streaming revenue. Yes, on all the revenue from the company right. is, 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 is what I heard. And I think what is interesting and will be worth watching is just where everyone's appetite is for this. Mm-hmm. You know, they need, everyone needs to get back to work um, on both sides of this. Um, AMPTP is acting as if this was a bridge too far and they would rather just not have shows anymore, which seems untenable. <laughs> so uh, we'll see. But it, it, is, it is a little nerve-wracking because there was an assumption um, that things were going to get going again. And while writers like me and much busier writers are back to work writing, production is not back. And that's a big deal. How, how would you like to divide up the rest of this podcast? Because we have our Fisher-Stevens mm-hmm. conversation. I'm happy to talk about Beckham now. We can talk about mm-hmm. Beckham leading into that interview. I think we should talk about leading into the interview. Okay, so let's talk about lessons in chemistry. I love Apple when TV. you let me choose. Andy, you know, one of the things I love about being your friend and also being your colleague is <laughs> uh, you're out there. Mm-hmm. You're scouting. Always. Not only did you scout this show out and you were like, let's, let's check out lessons in chemistry on Apple TV. Mm-hmm. But you were like, I hear tell of a dazzling young performer who's appearing in this show. Yeah. Not, not the star, not Brie Larson, Mm-mm. but someone to keep an eye on. Just, just, I wanted to put a little, I just wanted to, yeah. Tell me all about Lewis Pullman. I just wanted to plant a seed. Because I, I haven't heard of this guy. Yeah. He seems, he seems like one to watch. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I feel like he's someone who could potentially be a guest on this podcast someday. I, Maybe you could do the interview. <laughs> Is that too soon to say that? Um, <laughs> no, it's like three years ago. <laughs> so it's, he's, he's due to come back. Yeah, it's also, true. Also, three years ago, that was a crazy time. Yeah. Do you remember? I do. I was watching Outer Range with Lewis Pullman. <laughs> <laughs> when you saw him, were you like, this guy's good? Uh, in Lessons in Chemistry? <laughs> no. In, uh, Outer Range. I thought he was good in Outer Range. He's yeah. obviously very good in Top Gun Maverick. And I also would just say that I saw him in... The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, mm. uh, which is on Paramount Plus right now, which is the last film by William Friedkin, and is pretty hardcore law. Like it's just in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Monica Raymond who is on Hightown, and uh, Kiefer Sutherland and Jake Lacey, Jason Clark, mm. and Lewis Pullman, and That's it's pretty good. Great cast, yeah, and Lance Reddick, great cast. Um, so yes, uh. I, I'm just kidding. My own erasure, my own your your contributions to the podcast when I'm not on it, erasure aside. Um, I was very interested in this show. Yeah. Tell me why. Um, well, for a number of reasons. I think big picture, I'm still interested in what Apple is doing. And this seemed to be a great exemplar of what they most want, which is they took a best-selling, well well-reviewed book, which is Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmas. They secure the rights to, to adapt it. They get a A-list star in Brie Larson to, to headline it. Um, and then they package it together and make a show that will be broad in its appeal. Mm-hmm. I mean, they want to make shows that people, in, in, in similar to their products, that feel they want people to feel warmly about the shows. They want people to love them. I don't know if they necessarily want to push, challenge, offend, divide, whatever. I don't think they want to challenge audiences that much in the shows that they make. That sort of was sure. a top-down mandate. That doesn't mean they haven't made some some more interesting choices. What would you, just, just out of curiosity, yeah. what do you think is a challenging TV show? What do I think is a challenging yeah. TV show? Um, like, Give me an example of like a, a show that's been on in the last year or two that you find challenge, that you would say would be challenging. That Apple would be like, uh, it's a little... Uh, uh, special Ops Lioness? 
Yeah. I mean, it is. <laughs> well, that's personally challenging. Yeah. I, I guess what like, I mean— Would, would Apple right. do Succession? Um, that's a great question. I think that it would—you know, this, this is a potentially, I think, interesting digression— I think they would be interested in a succession-like show. Mm-hmm. I think the key difference here is, you know, famously, HBO's development process, they were like, we kind of want to make a show about money and like the, that, the 1% and how, that, how they determine, you know, our society and their impact on it. And then they started developing. And I'm sure they talked to many, many people, many, many different takes. Um, famously, and we mention this all the time, David Milch had a show called Money, Mm-hmm. Uh, with Ian McShane, they shot a pilot. It didn't work for them. Eventually, Jesse Armstrong and Adam McKay, and then the, a cast of not A-list stars, came together and made something that is absolutely uh, unique and was a triumph, and was the type of show that we are continually we're going to continue to talk about and mourn because it feels like that type of, even though it only ended up running four seasons, longer running show is harder and harder to come by. My sense is that Apple's development process would start in the same place. I want to make a show about money, or I want to make a show about um, a feminist chemist who becomes a TV chef. (laughs) And what they would do is they would throw money at it and stars at it and make it. And it's top down, not bottom up, ultimately. And that's the results in that may vary. When I when I was throwing around words like challenging, I think I was meaning more like the stuff that HBO still finds time to to do somebody somewhere i may destroy you yeah exactly the rehearsal yeah um how to and it's just a, it's just a different way to make tv and i am not against crowd pleasing content you know and i and all this is to say so lessons in chemistry premiered uh with two episodes i think out of out of eight and i found it very very i find the whole thing kind of interesting because in a th- there's one pass through it where I was like, this is, first of all, I think it looks phenomenal. I think Sarah Dina Smith, as really talented director, did the first two episodes at least. You know I'm biased because my guy, Zach Galler, who I think is a brilliant cinematographer, um, shot those first two episodes as well as I think the last two. I think it looks, it, it looks expensive in the best way. It's period shot in California, bright colors, considered framing, well cast around the margins. And also just in very small ways, like cooking inserts, chemistry insert shots, like the way it moves. I just really enjoyed being in its world. Yeah. It's professionally done to such a degree that it's pretty compelling. I think underneath that, there's some questions that I think you and I are going to, we're going to, we're, we're going to get to them that I think keep me from falling in love with something as opposed to admiring it. It's funny that we've kind of like settled into this Siskel and Ebert thing mm-hmm. where like we go watch a new show and we're just like, hmm. And then one of us is like, I want to light myself on fire. Which one of us just wants to light himself on fire? Me. Yeah, I did. I Sorry. Yeah, I didn't really this care for this very much. It was more just, I think, I found the first episode to be really, really, really plotting. I thought the second episode was better. And I think from now on, we'll consider the spoilers for the first two episodes of better Lessons in Chemistry. The second episode is much better. Uh, yeah, I thought that the runtime was much more kind of like fleet-footed. I thought that the story... I'm glad that they answered some questions immediately rather than being like, that'll just be a mystery that you guys have to wait eight hours to find out. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought it was, it felt more real, you know? Like, I think that 
the first episode was trying to get in a lot of different things. For one thing, signaling where the show is going yep. by doing this kind of nesting device of like, here's five minutes of How did this lady Brie Larson become? as a television mm-hmm. chef. And then seven years earlier, she's a chemist assistant. You know, the Brie Larson, the Brie Larson piece. Let's talk about it. She has probably got one of the more fascinating careers of an actor I can remember in recent times just because of the trajectory that she's been on. Mm -hmm. So she comes out of the gate and it's almost like saying I liked her early stuff, but a lot of people were very fond of her in Short Term 12. Uh, Me among them. Yeah. Uh, It's a fantastic indie movie if you haven't seen it. It's It's the birthplace of modern cinema. It's It's basically like... uh, Dustin Cretton, who did... um, who who will be doing the next Avengers movies. He did Shang-Chi. He directed it. It is like the origin story of Brie Larson, Rami Malek, Lakeith Stanfield. Um, John Gallagher? John Gallagher is yeah. great in that movie. It's a, it's a remarkable source text. Is Anna Kendrick in that movie? Who's the, uh, who else is in that film? Stephanie Beatrice is in that movie. That's who, that's who I was thinking of. Is Caitlin Deaver Caitlin in Caitlin Deaver. Caitlin Deaver is in this movie. This movie invented modern Hollywood. <laughs> Destin Credden. Good job by you. Great movie. Uh, Ten years old this year. Well, there you go. And it's been an interesting decade since then because she wins an Oscar for Room. She uh, appears in My Beloved The Gambler mm-hmm. um, as a waitress and, you know, smitten with Mark Wahlberg's decaying, crippled by addiction gambler. Mm-hmm. Uh, she directed a film. Right. She started a YouTube channel. She appeared in 714 Nissan commercials. Right. And is now a part of the MCU and the Fast and the Furious universe. Yeah. And it's it's like it, and 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 it's interesting that this is coming out when it is, which is essentially paired with the Marvels because these are the two sides of what she she seems to, to be interested in doing. This very prestigious dramatic work and then big blockbuster popcorn stuff. And yeah. even in those two performances, and I haven't seen the Marvels, so I can't really comment beyond watching the trailer trailers is that she seems to have left behind like a kind of uh, relatability. I think that she had in, in short term 12. And I think that that's obviously inevitable for people as they get more and more famous as it's harder and harder to kind of see Mm -hmm. the, the person, but I can't help but feel like sometimes she's playing a character on a spreadsheet to check off boxes of like maybe things she's interested in, but also things that are like, appealing different quadrants rather than like mm-hmm. I'm playing a person. But I haven't read the book and I, I don't know well, if this material is like really my vibe. I, I think that's probably more, I think that's definitely can't be discounted. But I am interested in her as a performer because, you know, another movie that that we mention often when we're talking about her is um, Joe Swanberg's Digging for Fire. Yeah, that's right. She, what made her absolutely remarkable in Digging for Fire and Short Term 12 and her earlier work was that she seems so intimately comfortable on camera and just being a person and just she's there and she's sort of alive and she's present, which is an incredible skill. And the thing that we've talked about when we when she joined the MCU, and I, I think probably for better or worse, more likely the latter, when we talk about the Marvels, is that she does not seem comfortable doing big green screen acting. Yeah. And frankly... Why would she? It's super weird. And not just because we recently talked to Joanna Robinson about her book, but like 
just like the, when you see images of what these movies actually look like when you're filming them, when you're just covered with sensors with some dust at your feet uh, and a green screen in Atlanta, I, I don't know where you ground yourself in it. So I don't blame her. I think that's reasonable. But what's odd about this is once again, it, she does feel kind of othered by the scale of it, whether it's the being the star of this piece or the nature of the character, who is someone, this is a show set in the 1960s, um, 50s and 60s, and it's not, so they're not using language like on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I think it's not unfair to suggest that that's Elizabeth Zott, her character is, perhaps. Yeah. So in a way, I found her performance similar to her performance as Carol Danvers, is that she's an otherworldly superhero mm -hmm. who's not really comfortable in her skin or on this planet. It is not necessarily fair to her or the way I even want to frame my conversation to the show to say, bring it full circle, and say the reason the second episode of Lessons in Chemistry works is because of the lesson in chemistry on screen. Lewis Pullman is phenomenal on the show. You should really check him out. I bought stock early, so I'm sorry you can't get on the price I did. I know, it's tough. Much like what happens in the narrative where his character sort of draws her out to a degree, makes her feel comfortable and safe. Eventually, yeah. Eventually. The episode is at its best when they are just two people on screen together. Yeah. They're really good, and I really enjoyed a lot of the stuff with them just sort of romancing each other. It's very sweet, and that's, that's the part of the show that, that worked for me. I will reiterate yeah. that this is a spoiler conversation for here, the second episode of Lessons in Chemistry. Here comes the, spo here comes the spoiler. In the, the second episode is a tender romance between these two slightly off-kilter scientists. I mean, it's, got, it's pretty scientists. also a harrowing, dramatic origin story for it Elizabeth, is. where we get a sort of snapshot of what she's like as she's entering the yeah, world we of say, I mean, we should say, I feel like we sort of glossed this over. It's in the early over. 60s. Uh, Elizabeth Zott is a God-level chemist and genius who got a master's and was on track to get a PhD in chemistry when she was the victim of a sexual assault that ended her academic career and, of course, traumatized her life and mm -hmm. her. Um, so when we meet her, she is working as a lab tech, making essentially making incredibly refined coffee for scientists who belittle her. Yeah. Um, and, and working at like this place called the Hastings Institute where she's, even though she is a lab tech, asked to participate in like beauty pageants and stuff like that, where it's like, you know, mm -hmm. essentially like, like demeaning herself or belittling her own accomplishments. And she then forms uh, a surprising connection with another outcast who's like the, the boy genius of the lab played by Lewis Pullman. You should check him out in Outer Range, a show I talked about frequently on the podcast. And they then become partners in work and in life. Mm -hmm. He shows her how to swim. He teaches her how to swim yeah. um, with the still controversial kissing technique. Sure. Um which is not how they taught me at day camp. <laughs> I did not get that at my YMHA uh, <laughs> CPR class. Sadly, it is why you were asked to not return as a lifeguard um, that one summer. <laughs> I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I decided I was finished. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. okay, Kanye, that was your... That, that's how you left school? Yeah. Got it. Um, and we're dancing around the fact that... Um, in the last seconds of the second episode, well, she's home making a delicious omelet for their breakfast and their new life together. Uh, their beloved dog kills him. <laughs> That's not quite what happens. You make it sound like it's 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 a wolf attack. The dog <laughs> I yanks the, on the leash. I blame the dog. And a bus hits Lewis Pullman 
going like 58 miles per hour on Fountain Avenue. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is the fastest I've ever seen a bus moving. A- Kai's face says it all. What <laughs> in the absolute fuck are we doing here? The bus hits him so hard and then the episode ends. But like, I understand if that's like, first of all, like I'm having like a real problem being like. <laughs> the face is in the studio right now. Is a, Elizabeth Zod is not a real person. No. No. So I'm like, part of me is like, are you adhering to some biographical history <laughs> that we need to like pay, hold space for Lewis Pullman getting pulverized by a fucking bus? <laughs> it's also very reminiscent Dude. of the end of uh, Meet Joe Black, uh-huh. where there's a massive car accident. There's something about this that is so unintentionally funny and so fucking. <laughs> I'm just like, so I spent two hours getting invested in these two people. And I thought like, oh, he must have just been off camera while she's cooking. Or maybe they maybe they grew apart. And it turns out they did grow apart because he is in heaven because he was hit by a bus. No, <laughs> and that's where he lives. He in while she lives in Santa Barbara. Now, apparently is. he does. Louis Pullman, great young actor, uh-huh. apparently does return in series um, like As, flashbacks okay. and stuff. But um, Really? Because they've known each other for like four days. Also... This is what... What are they flashing back to? One of my favorite things in the show, and I bought it. This is a small nitpick, but I mean it that, like, it's fine because I thought it looked really nice, is that, like, the show suggests that they have been living and working together for at least six months, right? Maybe a year in the, in the, in, before they start living together, living together. Oh, I, I must and, have been looking at Instagram. When but, they, it, no, but I mean, like, they're working together. They're, like, have this breakthrough. It's Christmas. Oh, and then yeah, they have yeah, this, yeah, like, yeah, nice yeah. dinner scene. And uh, I have to admit, I'm starting to lose track of how time passes on television shows. Well, I have no idea. I think it's a great point. Yeah. But the reason I say this Like at is, the end of the goal when they're like, it's been years. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it took you guys years to do this? I, I just mean that like when you're working that closely with someone, you usually don't wait until Christmas night when you spent the entire day to be like, do you have family you normally visit this time of year? Yeah. And she's like, ah, now is the perfect time to tell you that I'm estranged from my parents. And he's like, I too am estranged. We've never talked about it until this moment in front of the Christmas lights. Yes. You buy some of that. By the way, the, the movie that you referenced when we were texting about this is the Robert Pattinson <laughs> classic, Remember Me, which is just like a tender coming of age story. And then he's like, I will always treasure these memories of remembering you and falling in love as I ascend to my breakfast meeting at Windows on the World on September. Yeah. Wait, what day is it? <laughs> and then like the last shot is, it's pretty Weird. Uh, I also was like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to say that. I was going to say something un- unkind about dog leashes in the 60s. And maybe like, I would basically be like, the dog walks on the outside of the sidewalk. You know what I mean? The, like, The dog needs to go on trial <laughs> for human slaughter. Apple TV doesn't let you do screenshots. I'm sure I can figure it out. But like, they don't let you do screenshots. It's d- the DRM or whatever it is where it blocks blocks that kind of content sharing but I have DMV, a screenshot DSM. that yeah. I wanted to send you mm. of the last shot of this episode which is just the dog looking at the dog's like oh shit <laughs> the dog's like how am I going to explain this shit <laughs> Isn't there are a, we being insensitive this is, is a fictional character version of the story because the dog she meets the dog in the episode and the dog's eating garbage and she's like don't do that i will prepare you a fine meal the yeah. dog's like cool and then the dog <laughs> eats the food and like shakes hands with her and the dog is having the greatest life ever until the day she learns uh, to swim yeah and then all of a sudden there's a dad around taking up half the oh, time so you think that this is basically omelet. yeah 
I think the dog had a plan. Apparently, in Lessons in Chemistry, the book, mm. the dog is an is is a narrator. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not I, joking. I think. I, I, I think la- that here, the, I think 6:30 has like the, a the dog is from named my, my POV. Here's something else I want to say. Don't you can't ever say that we don't do the work. Books are so weird. And that's why you and I love books. And we often talk about some of our favorite uh, crime novels being like, this, not only could this never be adapted, this should never be adapted because this is either abhorrent or so weird that it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense now, but you're kind of lost in the flow of it. And so there are details in this story that I think is accurate. Lee Eisenberg, uh, who as one half of the writing team with Gene Stepnitsky wrote on The Office and has done a lot of other work in, in Various genres. He he adapted this. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that it's quite faithful in many ways to the book. I think there's one chunk that we're going to talk about in a moment that is not as faithful. But when I saw some of the decisions in this character, and like, this is this is insane. So I'm like googling reviews of the book, and the New York Times is like, this book confounds every stereotype, and it is excellent. Like people love this book, uh-huh. and details like your man Lewis Pullman getting pancaked like the dude that ran onto the field of Citizens Bank Park the other night. <laughs> I was waiting to see how you would work this in. He, that's in the book. So, but sometimes a one-to-one doesn't work because when you put it on the screen, it it feels absurd. I have to be completely honest. This was like red wedding level for me. I was just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Isn't this, who else is I, in this show? I also think that this is potentially an issue that I, I think, you cast this part. I'm not, this is okay. It, it, it's not even a bit anymore that I, I think Lewis Pullman is great, but like he so outkicks his coverage here. Yeah. That I think the show might have a problem. Do you know what I mean? Like this show, I think the nature of the story, the, the book and the story is about this woman who doesn't fit in her time, is anachronistic in her personality and her point of view and in her wants and dreams and needs and behavior and overcoming. Her time period and and she finds the one guy who's like, why would anybody be sexist? (laughs) It's true, and so I think in the written narrative of it, he exists solely for her to learn from and and survive and endure and thrive. But in the visual storytelling language of this show, the show was working best when it was a romance, frankly. And I don't mean to belittle what the show wants to be or Brie Larson's performance or anything. But I don't know how you do it. It felt preposterous because it had found its footing. And that's one of the reasons why I find the show interesting is because it does fit into this larger conversation that we've been having and just sort of thoughts that I've been struggling to articulate, which is just like, broadly, what are we doing in television? (laughs) Because you work really, really hard to make a entertainment. Yeah. And you create a world and you have characters. and these two making it work and cooking dinner with their dog and like overcoming the patriarchy. I'm like, fucking put that on ABC on Thursday nights for 10 years. Not everything needs to be Game of Thrones. You mentioned the Red Wedding, but like, or this should be a light two-hour entertainment movie, right? Which is a, a genre, exactly what it should be. A genre we used to have is that books that were a little bit baggy and a little bit beloved would be optioned. And then when they would be adapted into movies, they would be a bloodthirsty, no, not bloodthirsty, cutthroat. <laughs> bloodthirsty would be killing all the characters with buses. Cutthroat adaptation, meaning we understand that it's a book, 
but we can't do that. We have two hours of screen time, so we will make this a movie version of it, and it'll be what it'll be. You know what I was thinking of when I was watching this show was um, In Her Shoes, which I think is a fantastic movie. It was a Curtis Hansen, LA Confidential directed movie based on the um, Jennifer Weiner novel. And it was Cameron Diaz and Tony Collette set in the great city of Philadelphia, city of champions. Um, it's true, it is. <laughs> the, 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 the final scene in that movie is set in one of Philadelphia's beloved Jamaican jerk chicken shacks. You've not seen this movie? I don't, honestly don't think I have. It's rewatchable to okay. me. It's really good. My point is, is that it is a light entertainment that doesn't, that knows what it's doing. Sure. It, takes its, it, it, it is made with seriousness of purpose and care. But you get in, you get out in two hours. When you're making an eight-hour thing that has to have the weight to almost earn its runtime and its star salary, you get these moments where it's like, let us really delve into the 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 everything about this Calvin character up into his outrageous death. Yeah. And then we keep, keep going. And then you get into the whole other part of the show, which is the thing that I think we also are bumping on, which is also, she's not only is she going to overcome the patriarchy and solve DNA uh, and people's dinner problems, she's also going to fix civil rights. And I, that seems to be the suggestion, I, just based on the cast list. So uh, Asian Naomi King plays a character named Harriet, which I think is new to the show was not in in the book correct right. or perhaps like some element a conflation of, but i from yeah. what i understand they're going to build the 10 freeway through the uh vibrant heart of a black neighborhood mm-hmm. what is now kind of west adams is then called sugar hill that's all true but the but putting that into this show i think is an addition from the book okay um so i imagine that that they become friends uh in this because she, seems like it, yeah. Because the Harriet character was neighbors with Doctor Adams. R.I.P. They had a falling out over the fact that Doctor Adams did not come to a meeting, like a city planning meeting. I can't believe we're getting so into the weeds with lessons in chemistry. <laughs> I was really intrigued by this. <laughs> I'm. I find you're you are just so unpredictable. Anyway, she doesn't go to this meeting. Well, because about cooking. And she's I like, like cooking. I can't really count on you. Yeah. So peace out. Like when I see you, I see you. And then he gets it by a bus. So Harriet is also going to be dealing with the fallout. Things unsaid to Dr. Adams. And I think this goes to my biggest, maybe both of our biggest. So the reason I was trying to, maybe we're taking even too much time talking about it is because I did want to praise the specifics of the show that are working and the spirit of a show like this that could work and maybe will work. I mean, this could be getting great viewership numbers for Apple. We don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a larger, there's a larger issue that I'm. I think we both have, that we both are struggling with, that the show is a absolute front of the line example of, which is, and I think I'm just I'm done with, which is characters from 2023, basically like points of view from 2023, like time travelers yes. in period pieces who are there to win moral victories for contemporary audiences that defy history. Well, you were you were asking what is what is Apple doing? And that is something that they do do. Like where they take mm-hmm. what would be like say the first season of Ted Lasso has some elements of like hey, this guy's lonely and like he's having a hard time with his divorce, but like here's the story of this like this crazy story. Like what if an American football coach took over a European soccer mm-hmm. or an English soccer club? And then the second and third seasons get way more into like mental health and like it's so many more issues as, as as they go along. And then the you know whatever. The same thing could be said for morning show. 
if Morning Show was a salacious, basically prestige soap mm-hmm. set on the behind-the-scenes day-to-day production of a morning news program, I think it would be pretty incredible mm-hmm. to just... I mean, not incredible, but it would be like, that's worth the price of admission, but it's also now been about COVID, the war in Ukraine, and January 6th. <laughs> January 6th. And it's sort of like a quasi-newsroom show. Mm-hmm. What I'm curious about is whether or not that is coming from some unknown part of Apple HQ. Mm-hmm. Like somewhere in Cupertino, someone's like, we got to make sure that we hit trending topics, hot button issues, the things that people care about. Or is are those the things that big stars kind of care about? And they're like, this need, I'm not just going to do TV. I'm going to do TV that matters. I, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I don't think Cupertino is just like, let's really talk about election integrity. And like get to the bottom of it in our shows. I think um, there is a desire among all the creative classes to engage with the actual like business of being alive in this country and to do not just good work, but 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 capital G good work. You know, I, I, I I, I hate to be cynical, but like I hear that and I'm like, you mean on Twitter? Like you mean like? But this is what it feels to be alive on Twitter. But this is tweeting. Yes, this is also tweeting. And what and. You know, you know the the thing where it's like, oh, if if I had access to a time machine, I could go back in time and kill baby Hitler, and then we'd solve all of these problems. The what the problem in contemporary art is that people have access to a time machine. You can make period pieces, and they're using it not to kill baby Hitler, but to move near Germany and shake their head and be like, I wouldn't do that. I know better than that, and it feels good. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you. It mean. is honestly, it's, yeah. it's 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 coward shit. Yeah. Like, there are serious issues in the founding and the development of American cities, and certainly Los Angeles chief among them. But to sort of railroad, which is a poor metaphor since we're talking about highways, that story into this feels borderline insane. Because... Well, we'll see. Because now like, we've cleared out all the other distractions <laughs> from, from this part. It's true. It's just there's this element of... It, it, it's, it's, it is the equivalent of a superhero movie to me for a certain type of NPR listener to have like the Brie Larson character is autistic for everything but sexism and racism. Right. And um, which isn't to say I want her character to be like super racist. I just mean it's, <laughs> oh, it's just what an amazing <laughs> note from Cupertino. Yeah, exactly. Tim weighed in on this personally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he wants no. It's just it, it, and it's this is this show is not the only show that does this. It's just bizarre. It's like either tell us a his, tell us a story about people in history, which is what Mad Men was doing to a degree, mm-hmm. or tell us a story about now. But don't put you know um, heroes of resistance Twitter throughout the time the, the sacred timeline just to have them like pop off some like sacred timeline. You know what I mean. <laughs> That's what this is. This variant branch needs to get pruned. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 bizarre. Like the like Asian Naomi King is a is a great performer. And I I there, as you said, there's a lot more to be done with Harriet Stone, but like what she does in these few episodes is to like deliver a very well written speech about why her neighborhood shouldn't be bulldozed by while a bunch of white men who don't have mustaches, but essentially could be like, mm, humbug. We'll get this neighborhood yet. I don't know who th- I don't know who that I don't know what that's doing. I don't know what that's I'm doing. I'm actually so first of all, I think that Rosillo, Bill, and House are gonna do a part four of the over-unders to discuss how they all took the under and how long we would talk about <laughs> lessons in chemistry. 
<laughs> but we wound up breaking. Like, this is a long episode of this pod. Um, <laughs> you've almost now made me curious to see yeah. the the rest of this, or at least another episode to kind of see. I mean, I, I was going to start the third episode because I needed to know, like... <laughs> Like you think Elizabeth's gonna take this well? Well, like is it like Benson and Stabler looking over Lewis Bowman's <laughs> body? Like how does this fucking thing start next? And I, I also just feel terrible. Like again, it is the difference between books and movies where I'm like, in a book, it's handled a certain way, and the the author, Bonnie Garmus, I can imagine can bring us into Elizabeth's POV, or maybe the dog is like, oh shit, and the dog POV chapter. Or the dog is like Got him. Got him. <laughs> Got him. But on camera, the it just, dog is like it is what it is. This just felt <laughs> wildly cruel. Yeah, it just sure. feels it feels unhinged. Um, this is TV, man. This is this is TV in 2023. There are a lot of worthwhile things that could prompt a 40 minute conversation. Lu- Lu- and a lot of Lewis was like, "I got to get back to the outer range." Was that where? You, yeah, the, the outer range season two is coming. Did that worry you when you saw that that your favorite actor was going to be on Lessons in Chemistry? Were you like, "What does that mean for outer no, range?" No, I'm sure. I know that they're done the second season. I think. I, I mean, I assume they are. I don't know with the strikes and maybe they didn't. Um, okay, we're running long ish. Uh, got somewhere to be. What are you? I actually don't. I actually don't. You want to do a four hour pod? We can do a four hour pod. I am. I actually perfectly we, caffeinated. I, I had today. stuff from the from the top of the pod that we can still hit. No, I think we should talk Beckham. I love this. Docuseries. Tell tell people about it. So, um, very much in the vein of The Last Dance, I think David Beckham was casting around to put together the definitive docuseries documentary look at his story career as uh, not only probably England's most famous footballer uh, of all time, but also a very 21st century story about an individual athlete becoming a huge brand. Mm-hmm. Um, very much in line with the likes of Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods to England, like it's Bex. It's Beckham marrying Victoria uh, Adams, who was better known as Posh Spice and the Spice Girls. And, you know, his international celebrity as a footballer and as, as like, as a star. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was obviously a story to tell there. The way that Fisher Stevens, who people may know as Hugo from Succession, but has made documentaries and has done some feature work as a director and is kind of, just sort of a mainstay of Hollywood over the last and of several decades. New York theater. He's, he's, York he's theater. a, that guy. Yeah. Uh, is um, very much in service of the Beckham myth, gets under the hood on the Beckham myth to mm-hmm. some extent, and also is just a fabulously entertaining and compellingly watchable portrait of sports and celebrity over the last 25 years. I watched this. I said this to Fisher. I watched this with my wife, Phoebe, who is is actively like, what are you doing when I'm, mm-hmm. what, like, like, can we go out? And I'm like, no, no. By the way, that sounds like Ashton Posh Spice. Villa is playing Wolves. She, that Posh Spice, <laughs> they drink every time she says she doesn't like football. Yes, in this I love watching him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, Phoebe does not love watching me watch football. So I don't have, <laughs> no. She's actually very nice about it. But she was like, do you want to watch this? Mm-hmm. Even though she was like, I don't really care about this stuff. But, I, you know, her, some of her friends have been like, this is I, really, really cool. I learned about this documentary from our friend Amanda Dobbins, yeah. who famously, I think, it's safe to say, is not uh, into the FA Cup. No, but I think is into English popular culture mm-hmm. and and is is has a warm relationship to football. I think, yeah. but anyway, like this documentary will satisfy sickos mm-hmm. who know that Manchester United win the treble, and also casuals who have like they're like so. How many teams are in the Premier League, and like why do they also play against Italy? Mm-hmm. You know. 
What did you think of it, man? I didn't finish it yet, but I'm going to. I watched half of it. It's four episodes. I thought it was wildly entertaining. It's really, really good. And I'm also glad that I watched more than one because I did have, I thought I had a slight criticism about it and then it was answered. It's, when you start watching the first episode, it throws you right in. Um, and, you're, you know, within moments, um, Beckham is bending the ball in an yeah. insane half-court shot that kind of made him... Half-court? Half-court half shot. Is that what it's called? <laughs> Mid, midfield strike? Liquid football. Yeah, that's right. Like a traction engine. Uh, <laughs> and you were just off to the races. Mm-hmm. And my concern was, oh, is this going to kind of a s- take for granted? You that were he's worried some- that he wasn't going to bring up some really like hot-button issues. <laughs> I was like, what does he feel about the building of the M1 freeway through Duke Ellington's neighborhood. Yeah. Yes. Uh, no, it, but more like I, I think one issue that I have sometimes with with sports documentaries, and I can go different ways, is like this guy has transcendental magical abilities. Mm-hmm. And are we just assuming some people have magic? Like it's Harry Potter. Like he's just great at this. And then everything that happened is because of that. I think what Fisher Stevens did was very smartly get us moving, get the car going down the road, and then he pulls back a little yeah. bit. So the second episode opens up a little bit about his psychology and his childhood and his father. It's a pretty interesting ways yeah. that color everything you've seen before. So that was my only real note going into it. Like I thought it is, you said it best. I mean, it is just incredibly entertaining. And I was not paying attention. You know what? It, it has, it has panache. It does. Uh, there's when I believe it's introduced you know, like the Spice Girls are introduced with the wannabe video playing, mm-hmm. but with no sound. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, oh yeah, like the shark and Jaws is arriving in this. In this, And Victoria's fantastic in it. I would say, honestly, Beckham might be the least engaging talking head. But in comparison to Victoria and several professional media members now yeah. who are like Gary Neville, who is is essentially like the one of the biggest pundits in England, uh, sports pundits in England now, uh, who is his teammate, Manchester United. So Alex Ferguson, who's one of the most enigmatic characters in all of sports. Uh, Roy Keane, like the people that they have talking, John Carlin, whose book about Beckham or about Beckham's time in Madrid is is a must read. I, well, the, there's there's a couple things. I think it, it's it's, Interesting, kind of disconcerting, because it starts, the whole documentary starts with Beckham in his DB-branded beekeeping costume, mm-hmm. extracting honey from his many hives. Wait till you get to the part where it's he like, grills a single mushroom. It's, I can't wait. Because he's like, this is what I truly love to do, is to come out to my grill and work on, like, perfecting the mushroom. This is how I think Fisher Stevens used the comfort level they had with him to his advantage, because he does reveal enormous amounts about him. Beckham is revealed through the casual moments, like when you see how OCD he is in his kitchen, um, that he likes beekeeping. Um, his the, the technique that Fisher Stevens uses where he has a camera close up on people's faces while they are watching footage of themselves yeah. and you can't, and they cannot help themselves but react one way or another. Um, it's, it's pretty insightful. And also he captured these moments that are pretty breathtaking. Like in one of her first talking heads, uh, Victoria is saying that she grew up working class and Beckham from the doorway is just like, tell them what car your dad drove you to He's school. Like, tell in. the truth, be honest. And she's, and she's like, honest. we had a lot of different cars. It depends when. And finally, she's like, my dad did have a Rolls Royce yeah. for a time. And he's like, that's it. 
and he leaves the room. <laughs> it's, it's cool. Um, my thing, and I really need to hear you talk about this, is, uh, you know, this was a, the early parts of the documentary are cataloging a period of time where we became friends and we were also both constantly buying like the British music press and pretty big Anglophiles at this time, if not, I mean, sure. still are to a large degree, but I'm trying, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring this culture back to, <laughs> you to, are. to the gridlocked streets of Los Angeles. God, you're just a preacher. Um, but like, you know, there's the great, there's the great stuff about Manchester at the same time and the Hacienda and, and Peter Hook from New Order is interviewed. Um, Oasis plays in the soundtrack. What was truly shocking to me was how provincial isn't the word. But how small the biggest things in England feel felt then in comparison to the way they are now, whether it's because of like the Emirati money that transformed the Premier League or just the globalization of a certain type of wealth and excess, particularly in the world of sport, mm-hmm. which Beckham was a part of the transformation yeah, of. For but sure. those opening images from the 90s, they're just like doughy boys in baggy shirts. And it and they're running onto like the grassy pitch, and it does not feel like the glossy product yeah, that the Premier I think League it was, does today. He was part of a two-way traffic that's pretty much like around when Arsene Wenger takes over Arsenal. But I, I I'm not trying to make any definitive broad story. I'm saying that like essentially the Premier League, which was largely just English football players, mm-hmm. started opening up to players from around Europe and mm-hmm. South America and everything. And they, you know, you start to get uh, your Thierry Henrys and your Patrick Vieiras and, you know, Eric Cantona and these guys coming in who are sort of changing the game in England. The Eric, the Eric Cantona part where he's just like, we, we played a beautiful football. <laughs> it was a beautiful football between us. Um, and then Beckham, for his part, is one of the biggest names to ever like leave English football from an English mm-hmm. player and go to La Liga. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody, and there, there had been players before him like, um, Steve McMenamin and stuff, I think, had gone to Real Madrid and stuff. But, like, he is the Galactico who goes and changes everything before Gareth Bale and some other guys. I just loved, like, you mentioned Gary Neville. Just, like, they just look like boys. They're yeah. just, and, 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 but and, and, know, and so my and, follow-up and, was going to be, like, do you think that you'd feel that way if you watched, like, a documentary about the 2001 Sixers? Like, don't you think you would be, like, oh, my God, they had baggy shorts and they well, didn't look it's like... Well, not, it's not the fashion thing. I mean, I, and also... No, but, I mean, but, it's almost and, like... And, it, and these are all... And one of the, the benefits of documentaries at any time, and, and Fisher Stevens had access to incredible archive stuff from mm-hmm. locker room and just, you know, as we find out, Beckham's father has 14,000 hours of, like, matches of his 1,300 kid. matches. 1,300 matches. Yeah. I'm sorry, that's right. To draw from, there's always going to be an element of, oh, my God, when you take away the the loudspeakers and the the, the fans and the screaming and the, the trophies, they're just kids in a room waiting yeah. to go on and that's remarkable whether it's sports or music or whatever i think the thing that i'm really responding to was the nature of the rooms and the nature of england itself where it's like manchester united is a global brand but for it's much of its room. but yeah. but not but for especially in the 90s and up until more recently like there was a receptionist who mm-hmm. worked there for 60 years and she's interviewed and it's delightful um the rooms themselves are just kind of dingy i mean this is just it was a local football club and that piece of it. And then when you fold in the narrative too of what he captures and what he builds of like really reminding us, even those of us who know, maybe not as, you know, day to day, but like know how important the World Cup is to see what it, the way that that manifests in England, in the late 90s, in the pubs, on the street. It's 
it's kind of remarkable. And, yeah. it, and it does feel, it makes it feel like a period piece or a piece about a changing of periods to a degree that I did not anticipate. I was kind of, I was blown away and kind of moved by it in addition to being very entertained. Yeah, it's it's nostalgic, but it's also very, I think, insightful about everything that came from it, you know, both in the in European football, but in global sports. Uh, did, I guess... Did you ask Fisher Stevens, like, clearly Beckham has had his teeth worked on? That I was didn't my other ask takeaway. Did that. you ask I, him about that? We spent most of our time talking about our favorite Lewis Pullman roles. Oh, so he knew him. <laughs> did you tell him? Did you Columbus Lewis Pullman? To Fisher Stevens? <laughs> no. Why don't we get into my conversation with Fisher Stevens? Uh, Andy, it's been... It's been a journey through time. It's been a lesson in chemistry between us. Watch out for the bus. Uh, and we'll be back on Monday when we will be discussing... I love when you paint yourself into this corner. Well, I know that I'm going to go see Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon this weekend, but I have a feeling that you may not have the, the I've been three and a half to four hours of Trying to talk time. to my daughters about it. Have um, you? Well, they're interested in all the words in the title except the first one. I don't think they should see this. <laughs> I don't think so either. So no, I'm going to see it next week. So okay. I'd love to talk about we it We will podcast, eventually talk not. about Killers of the Flower Moon and also, you know, Loki. There's a bunch of stuff coming. Um, we'll find something else. Don't worry. I'm not worried. No, I'm telling our listeners. I we, mean, hell, Lessons in Chemistry E3. This could be a, a journey for us. Yeah, get on the bus now. Beep, beep. Here we go. Kai is going to watch it now. <laughs> well, no, we ruined it. We ruined it. She her face when we said Louis <laughs> Pullman. I know. I just want people to know as we get we into still, this, this is still the episode interview. Of the yeah, I just want to say this is an MVP performance by Kaya, <laughs> even though she was barely on mic. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season: your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy, and right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Fisher, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Beckham, which is one of those things that comes along every once in a while that I feel like deeply appeals to football sickos like myself and football agnostics, if not outright dismissives like my wife. We watched it with equal passion and fervor. And I think my first question is, how does one go around about making something that appeals to both deeply passionate expert level fans and also casuals well that was the goal so i'm glad that uh, it was the way your household reacted to the to the show because i i wanted you know the beauty of david beckham is that he appeals to so many different people for so many different ways also i was not uh into football 
when he played in England. I didn't really discover it till 2003. So I had no kind of previous knowledge of what he went through in England. And I frankly just didn't pay attention to him in Madrid at that moment. I, I wasn't like following how great football was in Madrid and in Spain. It was very good that I had a British editor or Irish, actually, he'd be, you know, Irish editor and a British producer producing team. I was the only American. And I think it brought a very broad perspective of David's story. So they, you know, and, and Michael Hart, my, my editor and John Batsick, my producer, they had incredible knowledge of football. Billy Shepard, my other producer had incredible knowledge of the Spice Girls. And I kind of wanted to be every man for the audience. That was my goal. The reason you hear my voice in the in the show was to be you and just kind of discover things with the audience. So that that was part of our planning was to make it for everyone. Now, I think that people see the word director and they understand what it means maybe when they see a Christopher Nolan movie or even 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 when they see an episode of Succession. But for something as broad in scope that involves I'm sure choosing music, choosing where David's going to be interviewed, what footage you're going to be using. Can you give our audience an idea of what the director of Beckham does on a day-to-day basis? Well, yeah. I mean, look, this movie was, you know, I had tremendous help. I had producers, Billy Shepard and Nicola Hausen and John Batsek um, helping me. And then my editor, Michael Hart, kind of along with with us, we we kind of write it as it's going. But the director... For this, yes, I'm I'm choosing who's going to shoot it, who are the camera people, what cameras, what lenses, where to do the interviews, how to do the interviews. I have help with the questions, but then ultimately, what are the questions? Um, what is the story we're going for? Who are the subjects we want to interview? You know, I didn't get everybody. I got most people. And then in the edit, for again, my editor is brilliant with music, but ultimately, like, it's my decision with Michael and John and everybody what music to use, what composer. Uh, I actually had a different composer at the beginning, sadly, and didn't work out. So we were very fortunate to get this great group called Bleeding Fingers in, and they saved my ass, so to speak, because they were brilliant. And then what songs to use? You know, we wanted Oasis at the end of the day. Noel Gallagher said, no way you can have a... We thought, <laughs> we thought he said, no way you can use a Manchester... My song in a Manchester United movie, but ultimately, Noel, thank you, Noel, uh, did give us uh, Supersonic at the end of the day. We used it. And so what are the songs? You know, um, I tried to use other songs. I couldn't afford them. You know, it's it's a constant, you know, budget. You know, I called the studio. This is the director's job with the producers. You know, I need an extra how many episodes? We were going to be three episodes. Let's make it four. OK, that was my choice. I needed to deal with the network. So it's a lot of choice a lot of decisions and again i can't stress how important it is to have a great team around you and what an incredible team i had you also have this other partner in david beckham he's got to be you know this voice in in the series itself you know you you sort of arrived as beckham was looking to do this right did he have an idea of what kind of I, i you've talked a lot about what he was and wasn't willing to talk about sometimes but did he have an idea of what kind of movie he wanted to make or what kind of series he wanted to make? Like, did he have a, was he buzzing off of Last Dance and said, oh, I want something that has that sweep? Or did he have any notes on that and the creative end? Uh, he brought up Last Dance when he asked me to do the job. He said, I saw that. I want to do something to tell my real story that nobody knows. 
other than that, I, I asked him like, who should I interview? You know, who, who would be interesting early on before we started shooting, but he had no, um, no, he didn't. And, and, and frankly, you know, he wasn't thrilled. I filmed his closets. He wasn't thrilled. I filmed him in the kitchen, making coffee at the, he got comfortable with me. And eventually I had an idea to open every episode with, kind of the real David, like other than that, I didn't really want to do a, like follow David to, you know, do a a Adidas commercial or follow David to sign autographs. I didn't, that wasn't the movie. I'll tell you one thing was interesting is if the lighting was too intrusive, he would tell me and say like, you know what, mate, I want to be, you know, this is too much light. Cause he knew that like, we're going to sit for three hours and we're going to really get into it. And, so that was interesting. And he certainly has been lit more than most human beings. So he yeah. knows that. But he's, uh, he was very trustworthy. I had over 40 hours with him and um, he was very open. And, and, you know, sometimes I needed more time to retell a story that I didn't think he really got to the essence of. So we did it again. And I told him, like, I don't think we hit this note. Can you tell me more about it? But no, he gave up. He he really trusted John Batsik myself to kind of tell his story. I think you also, uh, what you know, get lucky. You have the good fortune to find a, a, an ensemble cast of 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 talking heads who help out with you know spinning this narrative. And you know, when you get somebody like Gary Neville, it seems like that's the kind of guy that you almost have to get to stop talking. I mean, he is he's now become one of like the sort of sensations of British sports media. And there are so many other incredible interviews, not the least of which is Victoria uh, herself, Victoria Beckham. When, when you sort of started to assemble this murderer's row of people who were going to also fill in the blanks on David's story, were you were you like, I can't believe my luck that that this guy happened to know all of these incredible characters? I didn't really know. I, I kind of knew going in that I needed these people. And um the only couple I was kind of starstruck or nervous about were like Sir Alex Ferguson and and Presidente Perez. I was very yeah. nervous. And and Eric Cantona, actually, I was a bit because I, I I mean I had seen a couple of films about him and he is to me such a unique, special human being. I, I just think he was so I was a bit nervous for him. Uh to interview him because he I just revered him so much. But I, I listen, I've interviewed Man, I've been lucky in my career. I've interviewed so many major people in the world uh, from, you know, Obama, you know, uh, Bill Gates. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people. So I I wasn't that intimidated. It's just that the only way to tell David's story was to have these people kind of and and we cast it because I would watch like Rio Ferdinand's great on camera, you know, uh, obviously Gary Neville's great. It has to tell that story. And Michelle Salgado, who tells the story of when David gets to Madrid. You know, that guy I'd seen in an interview and we were like, we got it. Billy and Shepard was like, we got it. He could be Gary Neville of Madrid because he played where Gary Neville played uh, on Real Madrid. And he, and he was one of the few players that spoke English and could hang with David. So I got lucky with him, I would say. But we we watched interviews with many people. There were other footballers we just didn't think were that interesting, even though they knew David. They just weren't great on camera. But you have to kind of cast your your film. Yeah. I look at, I look at docs as almost like fiction. Like we're just going to tell a story and let it unfold and, you know, see how we do. My favorite part about the interviews with the non-Beckham characters are sometimes when you, when you ball out and you're like, 
at the Atletico Madrid stadium for Diego Simeone or if you're, you know, was that Lake Como for Fabio Capello? Like, where were yeah. you for, for that interview? I mean, some oh, of Lake, these. Lake Lugano. Lake Lugano. Yeah. Fabio lives there. I know. What a location. What a great <laughs> location. Uh, but we wanted to also try to find locations that fit the the, the subjects. I mean, it, listen, with Ronaldo, we, we had no choice. Ronaldo said, I'm in Madrid. Let's go to my office. But it's Ronaldo, of course. I'm going to do whatever if I, if I, if I can get an hour with you, man, you tell me, you know, sometimes, but then often it worked out like Diego was easy because he was training the team and gave us the stadium. So it was like, Oh my God. Awesome. Yeah. That background shot is the the backdrop of Diego's interview is just incredible. And he's such a, he's still so in the moment. He's still so who he was when when he did that, when he had that kick. Um, David, David showed me uh, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful text from Diego uh, that he wrote him after he saw the show. It was really, really wonderful. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, you and I, so you, you said you were sort of getting into football when he makes the move to Madrid. I think I, I got in, you know, I am also a Liverpool fan as, as, as are you. And I got into it around 05 when Liverpool made that FA Cup run. And there was this really interesting time period when European football was a, essentially like on Fox soccer channel. You could watch highlights of it. You could read The Guardian online, but you know we didn't really have Twitter and YouTube highlights that you could just inhale and just look at all this footage. And so one of the things that I really loved about the doc is to go back and actually see some of the match play and see you know all of these you know guys walking down the tunnel, guys getting off the bus, like the kinds of things that you take for granted if you watch American sports now and you're just constantly inundated with footage. For you, what was it like to go back and sort of assemble the video and assemble the almost the evidence of a sport before you were really, really into it and before Americans really got got access to it the way we have now? Well, I, it's funny. I love the kit, you know, the jerseys. Uh, they were so cool back then. Um, that was one thing I... <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the way... Um, there was a work ethic that I noticed... You know, I, I got to see the Manchester United archives, this great company, PDI, filmed them. And um, we were so lucky that they filmed Manchester United basically once Sir Alec came until like 2002 or three, or maybe maybe they kept going. I don't know. But David left then. But um, the work ethic and the uh, dedication and the training regimen back then, a lot of it was recorded and you see them warming up. And that was really amazing to see. And the camaraderie and the teammates, obviously David had an issue where they had to come around him, but seeing also just, you know, I mean, you, you hear about the rabid fan base in in England and the UK and to, to see the the footage of them going nuts. is is pretty radical it was pretty that was pretty wild to witness back then yeah and obviously it continues but it's it's gotten a little better i think in terms of the hostility but who knows um without that archive uh we would have been in a lot of trouble we needed that archive to help tell david's story you know i mean they were in the locker room there's a great shot of sir alex putting his arm around david at 16 years old in the locker room before he even made the first team that we cut to a couple of times because it's such an iconic moment, but the cameras were in there. Yeah. Know? I mean, you juxtapose that with, with the moments, the sort of last moments he has at Manchester United. It's one of my favorite parts of, of the series. Were there any moments? Cause I can't imagine putting myself in your shoes, you know, how distracted I would get if I was making this. 
And were there any things that you would think to yourself like, oh man, I wish I was making a movie about this. I mean, you could make you could make a docu-series about the treble season. You could make a series about moving to Madrid. I mean, you could make a series about Roy Keane. Were, were there, was there anything that you were like, um, yeah, well, one, one day? Yeah, Roy Keane was one. You know, I mean, I, I, I think he's a bit bummed out. I, I, I could have used more of him, but it was it was tricky to fit everybody in. He's an amazing character. I, I tell you, um, the the story of the '98 England World Cup team, beside David's red card, that whole story surrounding Glenn Huddle, and there's a great movie that I would have loved to have made just about that team and you know Gascoigne not getting selected to play on the final squad and destroying the hotel room and Phil Neville getting cut as his brother Gary walks by the hallway they look at each other you know Phil had just been cut and Gary's about to find out if he's cut I mean there were all these crazy stories not to mention there was a lot more about David and him trying to see Victoria and what he was going through so that was a story I would have loved to have done a whole episode on you yeah. know we almost did a whole episode in 98. <laughs> um, and then the, the, yeah, the, the LA, the LA galaxy story is crazy and we, we get into it, but that had a whole other crazy thing when he left for Milan and, and, and trying to build football in America then. And then, and then now with Messi and David, what David took, what it took David to bring Messi into Miami. I mean, so yes, there were tons of times the Cantona, I know they're making a movie, but I was like, Oh wow, we've got to do a movie about this guy. He's genius. You know, yeah. Neville brothers and the sister, she's a professional athlete. There's another movie about the Neville brothers, you know, and the father's name was Neville Neville and he was <laughs> with David's dad, you know? Um, so anyway, yes. There, there are lots. How did you go about identifying the moments that you felt like this is going to be the crescendo of the episode? Because one of the favorite, my favorite parts about the series is how each one of these episodes builds, whether it's the trouble, whether it's sort of David's uh, exit from United, whether it's the issues that he and Victoria face over the course of their marriage. But, you know, there's one in particular uh, section that I love so much where blur the song sing by blur is playing as you're kind of building and building and what how did you go about sort of identifying okay this is this is a moment that i want to hang a lot of a lot of stuff on right here well michael the editor we would discuss crescendo moments and then he would he's so great with music so he found that blur track for instance and we know like we 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 charted David's course in each episode because it is a roller coaster every episode and the series. So it was just a matter of how much time to hang and when we're gonna stop and put a blur song in and see David come back, you yeah. know. And and um so those were long discussions, and there were more uh songs and more moments that we ended up excising because we didn't have we ran out of runway, we ran out of time, but we talked about ending the episode at the wedding for instance you know we wanted to end we we, we thought okay let's end it at wet we can't once the wedding we can't go further like yeah we got it so or once the red card we we got to stop we kind of those were kind of obvious um it wasn't easy getting the last episode and putting all that in because we cover a lot of ground in a lot of years and um i think netflix at one point we delivered an 85 minute fourth episode and it was not a pretty um but, but i knew we'd have to cut 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 but um they were really cool and 
I have to say they were like kind of the ideal partner for this. They were really, um, they gave us a lot of, uh, room and they gave us some really good notes and, um, they, they really let us find the story. And then when it was time to kind of, okay, that's it. Pencils down. Yeah. It, thank God. Cause I could have kept going. It was such a joy. I found the fourth episode to be fascinating because it's the deepest character study. I thought of David in a lot of ways. I mean, it's called what makes David run, but you know, you get into some of oh, like, I, you know what? do you know what that reference is from? You know, I think I, I don't know specifically, but I know that it's a phrase. So why don't you tell me? Well, well there's a book, my favorite book, maybe of all time, uh, is called what makes Sammy run. And it's by Bud Schulberg who wrote on the waterfront. Yeah. Yeah was a great, great, you know, screenwriter, novelist. And it, it's about a, a, a guy uh, from the Lower East Side in the 30s who um, will do whatever it takes to uh, become the head of a movie studio. But and, and the whole book is this guy trying to figure out what makes him run, what makes him tick. And my my uh, journey on this was, why is David always busy? Why has he always got to go? Why? So I am trying to constantly get inside what makes this guy who he is. And um, the fourth episode, as you said, is, you know, he's not a guy who is very into self-examination and why he is the way he is. And that was my job. And the reason I um, needed 40 hours and could have kept going was I, I, I just was fascinated by He's a unique individual. And the reason we are all fascinated with him is because he's unlike anybody else in that way. You know, you can't, you can't knock this guy down without him coming back stronger. And he, yeah. And he's also extremely um, kind as yeah. a human, which is kind of fascinating. The guy that famous, he has time for, uh, for things. For, you, the thing that jumped out at me though, is, you know, he, He's a great subject for a docuseries because he has been at the center of these controversies, whether it was leaving Manchester United, whether it was leaving Madrid to come here, whether it was leaving here to go to Italy, and then everything in his personal life. And yet, in all of those controversies, whether it's because of his demeanor or whatever it is, but he has this kind of like innocence to him. Like yeah. they, I wouldn't even go as far as to say naivete. That would be a little bit cruel. I would say that there's just something about him where you watch him talk and you watch the way he conducts himself and you're kind of like, well, he didn't mean to upset Alex Ferguson or he just fell in love or he didn't mean to upset the Madridistas. He just wanted to move to America to you know save his family. And there is this almost like, oh, this, this guy is so sweet. Like he, he didn't, this isn't what he wanted. He, do, do you think that he wanted a simpler career and a simpler life and it just turned into this? Or is there a little bit more of a kind of a, different side to him that you started to see no I, I i think you know he kept saying oh i never thought i'd leave manchester i never thought yeah. i mean he had to leave manchester to be who he is right like if he stayed in manchester he's not a global brand he's not it wouldn't have worked anyway because i don't i don't know i don't know he he's still heartbroken about what happened in manchester but i think it all went in a crazy way according to plan now people say, "Oh, life works. Everything is is meant to be." Now I'm not saying that necessarily, but I'm just, I am saying that for David, it worked out through good, better, for worse. He got to America. He saw how horrible the football was. He was in shock. He left to play in Milan. He didn't want to come back 
but he was forced contractually to come back to America. And then he came back full on love. You know, it was great for his family. And then he wins titles and tries to, you know, up the whole game there. Uh, yeah. The red card, he's not who he is without that red card. He yeah. is not, you know, um, after the red card, he comes back, has, you know, runner up Ballon d'Or, second best player in the world, according to all the voters, wins the treble, literally leads the team to that victory at the end, you know, really helped, becomes a massive leader. That's all after the red card, you know, people throwing stuff, kid trying to kidnap his kids, sending bullets in the mail. It builds this incredible exterior toughness, yet he's so... Like you say, he is vulnerable in a weird way. And that's why he's such a fascinating character. Well, it's it's just an amazing portrait of the character, Fisher. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, we didn't get to talk much about Liverpool, but that's okay. You know, maybe maybe you'll come back on one of our football podcasts later in the year. I would love it. I would love all it. Right. And we're going to make Champions League this year. Maybe, yes. win, maybe win it all. We got a little screwed over by Tottenham. That's <laughs> all Tottenham fans just turned off the pod, but that's okay. Fisher, thank you so much for joining me, man. Thank you. Bye-bye.